Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. All right, let's kick off 2022 with a Patreon question megasode. So sometimes when I'm behind on Patreon questions, I record a mini-sode. But there are so many of them left over from 2021 that this will be a Patreon question megasode. And just for a second, let me talk to you about Patreon. Patreon is where you can support the podcast if you choose. There are three different levels of support and each level gets the same benefits. And that's just about my interest in income equity and basically doing my part to provide that equity in a time that I think it's provided very rarely. So for each of the levels, you can submit these questions. You get to tell me what you want to hear on the podcast as well. And we meet once a month for Cog Dog Club. And sometimes Cog Dog Club is an AMA, so an Ask Me Anything. Sometimes it's live training demos. Sometimes it is a guest uh, that you get to ask questions of. Everybody gets access to that. And that is a new perk that I'm offering in 2022. You also get exclusive access to basically all of my offerings at the Cognitive Canine. You will hear about them first. And I also have some special merch that is just for patrons. So I hope that you'll join me over at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And here are the questions. This first one comes from Elise, who writes, You mentioned once that your dogs took food in a funny way. Someone mentioned it to you, maybe. And yes, at least I had mentioned that my dogs put my entire hand in their mouth when they take the food and a friend of mine commented on it. And the friend commenting on it is what made me realize it was happening. So Elise continues, my boy is so good about not touching my fingers at all, but I find half my hand in his mouth. How? He's a border collie. Did you change how you delivered food or did you shape them to take it differently? My boy is too sweet. And if I withhold food for a second while it's in his mouth, he thinks he's wrong and backs away. It's so slobbery and it's gross. (laughs) This is obviously not a big problem, but I'm curious. So Elise, we can usually change how they take food by changing how we deliver food. The way that I ended up teaching myself to deliver food, and I'm not 100% on this, but I try my best, is I try to put it in a cupped hand and deliver it almost like I'm feeding a horse. So I kind of jokingly call it pony feeding, where I put the treat in my hand and just in the palm of my hand and kind of cup it under their mouth and deliver it straight to them. Rather than, I think we usually want to put it between our two fingers and that can produce a lot of different behaviors. Now, I don't know how you're currently trying to feed your dog. I don't fully understand because you're saying he won't touch your fingers but half of your hand is in his mouth. So that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how he cannot touch your fingers, but put half of your hand in his mouth. I think what you mean is that he's not biting you, but he's kind of swallowing half of your hand. And that's kind of how my dogs were taking it until I took up this pony feeding. So let me know how that goes. Give it a try. Next one comes from Maria who writes, 
Every few months, my dog seems to get a bug bite or bee sting um, on his foot on a trail. No swelling or visible changes to the foot, but clearly is uncomfortable. Twitches the leg, doesn't want to walk more. He's small, so I just carry him back to the car. The next few times we approach anything that looks like a trail, he's hesitant to go forward. Should I let him decide when he wants to hike on a trail again on his own? Do a pattern game, words of encouragement. We could stick to pavement permanently, but I know the trails, when he's not scared, are much more decompressing than even the most desolate sidewalk decompression walk. So, Maria, you're right that trail time is really important to dogs. And also, I have experienced a few dogs who were so averse to bug bites or even stepping on something sharp or, or pokey that it affects their ability to continue to walk in that area. So for instance, we have these things in Colorado where I grew up called goat heads. So these like spiky little seed things that come off a specific plant and they stick right into a dog foot and gosh, they're painful because I've gotten one in my foot before and also in my hand. And my dogs will get a little hesitant to walk if they recognize that those are the plants that we're walking on. And I have also known dogs that in the springtime or the summertime when more insect activity kind of pops up, they're less willing to do stuff outside because they're afraid of being stung. So this has definitely happened. I've definitely seen it. And my first recommendation might be to try some booties or you know protective footwear of some kind so have something on the dog's feet so that nothing can hurt the dog's foot because what you need is a period of time where nothing does hurt the dog's foot and you sometimes can't access that unless you change what the equipment is that you are using. So I would encourage you to look into different kinds of footwear. You'll probably need to teach the dog to be comfortable with the footwear. And then in the meantime, I would walk on concrete to avoid anything like that happening. Okay, and the next one is from Nikki. Uh, Nikki wrote a very long question and then paraphrased it for me. <laughs> so thank you very much for doing that, Nikki. The paraphrase is, is it common slash possible for barky lungy behaviors to pop up worse after a dog has had a chance to free play with a lot of other dogs? And if so, what is the best way to get it back under control? So yes, of course it's common. We have to look at reinforcement. Okay. So if our dogs develop bigger feelings about other dogs because they've been allowed to play with them and therefore get a lot of reinforcement from them, then their frustration is going to be much bigger the next time they see another dog. So they're kind of saying, you know, last time I got to see dogs, I got to play with them, have a great time, be reinforced, and now I'm being restricted from that thing. So if I don't know anything about playing with other dogs, if other dogs aren't fun for me, I'm not going to be as frustrated um, when I see them. But it is important for dogs to play with other dogs. So how do we deal with this? For me, it comes from making sure the dog shows me, demonstrates self-regulation, and you can hop back to the self-regulation episodes. There's a couple of them for more information on this. I want the dog to demonstrate self-regulation for me before they get to play with other dogs ever. So I'm never allowing them to drag me into the dog park and then I'm unleashing or I'm not allowing them to bronco buck and um, drag me into training class and then get to play with other dogs. It's just not going to happen. I'm expecting them to 
demonstrate self-regulation for me as a rule before they ever get access to other dogs. And then multiple times during the play, I'm also asking them to control themselves. And then as far as tackling the actual reactivity, I would go about it just like any other reactivity. I would go through the Barky Lungy protocol for this dog. Even if this dog is friendly and nice, they need Barky Lungy protocol. And you probably need to weigh heavy on the desensitization layer of that protocol. Next one comes from Jessica, who writes, My Border Collie Fitz doesn't like interacting with humans when the other two dogs are nearby. For example, when I get home from being out, the two upperclassmen com converge with great excitement and we have a fun hello. Then once they're completely done, I have to call Fitz to me to say hi. If I come home and the upperclassmen are out, Fitz is enthusiastic about greeting me and getting love. If I'm so if they're out, if they're outside, if I'm petting Fitz and one of the upperclassmen wants to join in, he will he will bow out. He used to resource guard humans and has gotten over that, but I think this is his way of dealing with his strong feelings. I've worked on the first I pet Dash, then I pet Fitz, and he can do that briefly at arm's length from the other dog. Neither of the other two pays any attention to him in this situation or shows any resource guarding of me. Do you think this is a welfare problem for Fitz, something I should work on, or how big a project is it likely to be? So I think the welfare problem, Jessica, would be if you tried to make Fitz be part of this party. He doesn't want to be part of the party. He's being really clear that he doesn't want to be part of the party. And it's very normal for Border Collies to really strongly dislike anything that they perceive as chaos. And that's probably, that's why he had a resource guarding problem, or it may not have been a resource guarding problem. It may have been, I need the chaos controlled. And he has learned not to act like that. And the only thing he knows how to do is just not involve himself. And I would allow him to make that choice. I think the welfare issue would be to not allow him to make that choice. So I would say it bothers you, but it doesn't bother him. If he's just waiting, you know, if he's just over there choosing not to be involved, he's being allowed autonomy, he's being allowed to make those choices, I would continue to allow him to make those choices. And I think it's not actually a problem. All right, next one comes from Aaron. Aaron writes, how do you handle what I, what I refer to as the vocal stage in puppies, aka when they discover their voice and start really using it, whether in response to stimuli or just because? My five-month bull terrier is typically a quiet puppy except during play, but has recently entered the vocal stage with a couple outbursts directed towards joggers, the sound of an out-of-sight dog's barking, or sometimes seemingly just because. Early attempts to interrupt were not terribly successful and almost seemed to prolong the barking. My new approach of just letting it ride, if she does start barking and basically ignoring it until she's finished, then some gentle interaction, oh wow, big feelings today, or was that really necessary, paired with a little soothing pat, has been working much better. But as always, the worry of digging an unforeseen hole is ever-present. How do you handle these moments with Rhea or any puppy you're training? Excellent question, Erin. And um, I think that just increased reactions to their environment is a really normal thing for puppies to show. And then, of course, normal varies across breeds. Rhea got really, really barky at basically everything right before she had a heat cycle. Your puppy is female, so I do wonder if you saw that increase right before you saw her first heat cycle or not. No idea. You can let me know over on Patreon. I am curious. And then Rhea kind of came back down, and I'm actually seeing her begin to be barky 
all over again at stuff and it's almost time for her to cycle again so it's interesting it seems like it's correlating for her the approach of letting it ride and then kind of talking it out when it's over is what I would do and I think there's a reason that that's looking a lot more normal for you I know you're a listener of the podcast so I know I've heard you say you've heard me say this but I'm going to say it again it is best not to try to interrupt when the dog is having a reaction it is best to allow the reaction to play out and then ask the dog what their choice is going to be now and if their choice now is going to be to take a deep breath and move away wonderful reinforce that if their choice now is to investigate the thing and and that's safe to do great go ahead and reinforce that when we interrupt that's all we're doing is interrupting we're not helping them get better um, and we're not helping them not do that next time and we're not helping them feel better about the thing either. We're just helping ourselves feel better because interrupting that process makes us feel better so that we don't have to deal with it anymore. You did post this question a while ago, and so I am curious to know if the dog has had a cycle yet. I'm also curious to know if she is getting better uh, post-cycle, if she has had it, and just kind of where you are at now. I tend to let these things ride out unless something really is appearing abnormal. If my dog is barking at every single dog she sees in a really big way, I'm probably going to tackle that with Barky Lungy protocols. If my dog is barking at every single noise she hears, I might actually be talking about to a veterinary behaviorist about dealing with that noise stuff. It really depends because actual full-blown reactivity can show up this young, um, you know, reactivity as we label it, but also just reactive behaviors in general increase in this age. And you are handling it well to just let it ride out and then kind of have an interaction like you had said. So give me an update over on Patreon, Aaron, and let's see where you are at now. The next one comes from Anya. Anya writes... Hi, Sarah. I have a question about stationing. I do an agility foundations class with my 16-month-old border collie. The class is inside a barn where there are two classes at the same time, so there's a lot going on. I try and station Chief in as quiet a corner as possible, but the options are limited. He will hold station quietly 99% of the time with almost constant feeding, but he is not really relaxed. Maybe a bit more toward end of session. Will he get more relaxed as time goes on, or is he learning to be a coiled spring? Two classes going on simultaneously has only been a thing for a few weeks, and it is noticeably harder for him with this arrangement. The other week, he broke station to bark at a dog who ran close by, and I'm anxious that I'm going about this wrong. Please help. So it sounds, Anya, like you are asking a lot of Chief. It would be very rare for me to be asking a 16-month-old Um, puppy, especially a male border collie puppy, to be holding a station throughout a class like that. You're saying he will hold a station quietly 99% of the time with almost constant feeding. That means he's not really holding station. It means he's eating. And he can probably do that sitting in front of you or even in a crate, um, etc., as long as he's eating. Holding station to me is about self-control and self-control is finite and there's even research on that. So for me, a couple of things are going on here and I don't think this is about stationing at all. So one is that two classes is probably too much. So when it is your turn to take a break, I would encourage you to actually take Chief outside. So take him out 
maybe even have him have a break in the car or maybe just take a lap outside and come back in. I'm not sure if he's stationed because every dog is taking turns. If they are, if there's one dog working at a time, he should be outside for the majority of time that's not his turn and just station briefly before it's his turn. If he's stationing just because you need a break, then again, take him outside. So I would be really trying to break it up for him. I would also do some kind of passive stationing where he's doing maybe a food puzzle, like a snuffy mat, a snuffle mat or a licky mat or something like that for a little bit so that he's not actually actively controlling himself. He's just doing something else. If you practice him breaking the station and chasing other dogs or barking at other dogs that are running, or if he's coiled on the station, like you talked about staring at other dogs, you are not practicing what you want to be practicing. Um, and I will just reiterate, he's he's very young. You're asking a lot of him. And he is doing... Sorry about that chime from my phone. Um, he is doing really, really good work for you. And so... I would be protective of my station behavior. I want it to be a good solid standby. I want the dog practicing self-control, not needing to be guzzling food the entire time. And I'm also really protective of just my working relationship with my dog. I don't want them to feel frustrated all the time and I don't want them to have to control themselves the majority of the class. So I hope I answered your question, Anya, without actually seeing the class. It's a little bit hard for me, but please ask me Ask me further over in Patreon if you are still unsure. Next one comes from Annalise. Annalise writes, Do you have any tips on helping a dog be comfortable walking in the rain, even light rain? Ours finds it to be the worst thing ever, and potty breaks are tough if it's raining all day. There's not a nearby sheltered place for us to get to, get to and she's not open to using a mulch box on our stairwell. This seemed like something you might have some helpful thoughts on that I hadn't yet considered. So, Annalise, the two things that I would recommend would be, a, one, a really good raincoat. Um, and I am not being endorsed by this company, but I very much like the raincoats from Pampa. Um, and that's P-O-M-P-P-A. So a really good raincoat that's well-fitted and actually protective of her. And then the other thing to look into it would be some goggles from Rec Specs. A lot of the dogs are bothered by the rain falling in their eyes, and getting some goggles from Rec Specs would be a good idea. Anybody who buys anything from Rec Specs, you can use the code COGNITIVE10 to get a little discount there for you. Um, I actually don't get a kickback on that. It's just a company that I really appreciate, and so that's why we have the code set up. So you might try some goggles, and you definitely should try a raincoat. Next one comes from Megan, who writes... Hi, Sarah. I'm a fan of your podcast, and the idea of decompression walks really resonates with me. I have a six-year-old Jack Russell mix named Delilah with compulsive disorder who fixates on water and various weather in the environment like snow, rain, wind, blowing leaves, etc. We've been working with a behaviorist and have tried several medications with no success so far. The behaviorist has recommended we don't go on any walks or hikes because the outdoor environment is too overstimulating for her. I'm worried about meeting her exercise needs and I have heard exercise can help decrease compulsive behaviors, but she does get really hyper aroused outside. Do you think I should forget about decompression walks with Delilah or do you think there's a chance that could still help? Is there anything else I could try to help her? So Megan, um, if you wanted to contact me privately, we could probably do some consulting. I could do some consulting on this and build you a more uh, robust plan. But it is an interesting case, and I do disagree with not allowing her 
access to outdoors, although I do think you should change the way that you're doing it. So a few things just to be clear. Decompression walks are often the thing that people really cling to from my material. And that makes a lot of sense because I talk about them constantly. The reason that they're at the forefront of most of my material is because off-leash exercise I consider to be an essential need for dogs and I consider it to be an essential need that is lacking in most pet dogs lives and I do think the vast majority of maladaptive behaviors can be helped if not fully solved by uh, implementing these kinds of exercise walks but there's a reason there's four steps to behavioral wellness in my material Exercise is one, but enrichment, nutrition, and communication are the others. So I'd be really thinking hard about providing Delilah with a lot of breed and species typical enrichment. So does she have a sandbox that she can dig in and find stuff? Is she given stuff to shred and eviscerate every single week? Can you find a barn hunt class that she can get involved in so that she can express her terrierness? So those would be things I'd be really thinking about to kind of improve her overall welfare to decrease this issue. I would also, I do want to say that in my experience, compulsive behaviors are helped, yes, just like you said, most with exercise and then also with um medication. So if you've tried several meds and they haven't worked, I wonder if the meds just didn't have the support they needed with for on that enrichment front. And then she also still needs true decompression, which it sounds like she's never had in her life. So I still support the use of meds is what I'm trying to say. It's possible that the meds didn't have success because the other pieces were not in place. The other pieces are going to be that enrichment front, but also true decompression. And you're going, how do I get her decompression when outside is so overstimulating for her? Well, you want to manufacture it. So certain kinds of enrichment are very decompressing. Hard chewing is decompressing. Nose work training is decompressing. And you can do that in your house. But I really wonder about tracking for this dog. I wonder about getting involved with a tracking trainer or even just buying a book or doing an online class for tracking where you are providing her with a way to move her body outside, but that is channeled and focused towards following the track. I have found it to be one of the most decompressing activities for dogs in general, and especially these dogs that are so overstimulated by just having free reign in the world can be really helped. You would start on maybe some manicured fields at first, like soccer fields that don't have a lot of things to be obsessing about, or even a snow field right now, um, if she's not just going to dig in the snow and I would just up the food that you're using in the track if she is wanting to dig in the snow so that she learns to follow that food. And really give that a try because it sounds like more true decompression is needed here. And then the other kicker is that she probably truly needs genuine just exercise. Like Jack Russells tend to need to really, really run and move and use their body in powerful ways. And so I do wonder about a treadmill for her. I know that's kind of an expensive experiment, but if a friend of yours has one that you can try, that's a thought. Or if there's a rehab facility that's got some hydrotherapy, some underwater treadmill that you could do to just truly exercise her body without overstimulating her mind. Those are some ideas for you as well. Best of luck, Megan. Okay, the next one comes from Dorothy. 
Dorothy writes, my partner and I were gifted a small mixed breed puppy. She'll be around seven pounds when fully grown. She's currently doing decompression walks with us and our two larger dogs, 73 pounds and 50 pounds. We see eagles, hawks, owls, and coyotes regularly and have seen bobcats and signs of cougars. How do I keep her safe but allow her to decompress? Unfortunately, it isn't the safest thing to keep her on a long line if my one-eyed pity mix, who has a birth defect in her only eye, keeps blowing by us. Have you seen coyote vests or something similar that you would trust? So, Dorothy, I love this question. I think it's really important for us to be thinking about how we can get good exercise to our small dogs safely. I agree, oftentimes long lines and bigger dogs that are off-leash don't mix. I think you're right. But I do love the coyote vest. So I think getting this dog a coyote vest, and if you all haven't seen a coyote vest, Google it now. It is the cutest thing you've ever seen. It's like a little punk rock <laughs> leather vest with spikes coming out of it that your small dog can wear. So I would absolutely go for the coyote vest. And I would also put bells on your bigger dogs to alert wildlife to go away. Now that doesn't help you for wildlife that's looking at your tiny as a prey animal. But bringing attention to the fact that there are large dogs near you should also be helpful. The biggest thing I would do is that coyote vest. And I would also carry bear spray because bear spray can reach really far. So if you were to be stalked by something... Um, I would want you to be able to defend yourself. I would also teach your small dog to stay close. I'd do a really tight radius for my recalls. I'd be doing a ton of payment for check-ins. And I would teach your small dog to jump up into your arms on cue. And I would make that a really highly reinforced behavior. So that anytime you're a little bit worried about something, a little nervous, you see a bird of prey, whatever, you teach that dog to hop into your arms for a treat so that you can protect them. Best of luck, Dorothy. And the next one comes from Tiana, who writes, I have a question about my 11-month-old rat terrier. He's a great dog who I want to pursue a variety of sports with, but we haven't been able to because he gets so overstimulated by being around other dogs. He thinks that they're the best thing ever and does not want to do anything else but play with them. This is obviously a problem when trying to train a sport or attend a trial. He is neutered and that helped with some of his focus, but aside from that, I haven't had much success. I've worked on giving him high-value treats on walks when he sees another dog, and he now usually looks to me without prompting when he sees them which is great he really struggles around dogs who are active or aroused though please give me any tips and tricks so tiana the first thing i want you to do is go back and listen to the barky lungy series so that was a four-part series on dog directed reactivity behavior and it will all be helpful to you so the entire thing applies and pertains to this dog and then cut yourself a little bit of slack this dog is young high energy breed and I would be getting involved in not sport-specific classes, but classes where your dog can learn to just work and focus on you around other dogs. Interview some trainers. A Control Unleashed certified trainer would be a really good place to begin. So somebody who's doing Control Unleashed type classes would be really helpful here. And then also just pet manners classes where your dog maybe isn't even learning anything new, but is around other dogs and working around other dogs. He Think of being able to work around other dogs as the prerequisite skill. Too many of us try to teach our dogs that skill while also teaching them other skills like agility, and it just doesn't work that way that often. So you're really not alone having this problem. The other type of class to get involved in is nose work because usually they don't have to deal with other dogs when they do nose work um, in class, and but they know other dogs have been there and are around and they're focused and learning something else and that is a great thing for you to do. Good luck, I hope you get into all the sports that you wanna get into. 
Next one is from Jesse. Jesse writes, I wanted to ask how you handle the winter blues with the time change. Currently, daylight hours are not in line with my schedule at all. When I can't come home and give decompression walks as much as I can in the spring and summer, I feel overwhelmed with guilt. My dogs get almost daily training and daily enrichment for both meals when not training. Is there more that I could do? I would love to have a friend someday that would be willing to drive my dog to a place to decompress, but both my dogs and lack of trust are not ready for that process. Sincerely, someone who is adjusting poorly to a very long commute to their new job. So, Jesse, I'm so sorry. I do completely relate. My dogs definitely get less exercise during the winter because there's less daylight. When I'm in the Northwest, they get a lot less because it can be also pouring rain and dark. (laughs) So know that as long as your dogs are not popping up with maladaptive behaviors, they're not having behavior problems, then probably your daily training and daily enrichment and trying to get out for those hikes on the weekends is doing just fine. As far as the winter blues (laughs) um, for a person, you know, look into that, take some vitamin D, maybe get one of those sunlight lamps. But generally speaking, know that most dogs are very adaptable most dogs can adapt to a slower schedule during the winter as long as their needs are met kind of over time. So think of it as an overtime situation, not necessarily an everyday situation. And because you're asking this question and listening to this podcast, I'm just going to bet that you're doing just fine. All right. Next one is from Connor. Connor writes, I'll try to stay out of trouble with this question. What do you have available slash what are your favorite resources for best practice basics in agility. I have often found that one-on-one level training, regardless of topic, can be designed to be fun rather than focused on super clean foundations. Offer a quick payout to the handler to get them hooked. We can clean up the training later. (laughs) Please help perfectionist Virgo. Um, Connor later said that they caught up and we can all carry on, but I'm going to answer this question, Connor, because you're totally right. Most of your intro level, especially in-person classes, are designed to catch and keep people. And that means they're easy. And that means they're, well, that means they're easy for people, which means they're a little bit harder for dogs. And as we get better at stuff, we want to be better for dogs. And so I actually love, um, first of all, my friend, my agility coach, Megan Foster, you all know, has some really great online material that's available. um, And we will link in the show notes synergy dog sports there's a very affordable online group um she has online classes that's going to be my favorite resource but there's also a book called agility right from the start that we will also link it's by the famed uh carpe momentum dog trainers eva and emily and it's a really fantastic manual that pretty much anybody can follow and you're really not going to screw anything up following it it is a great book when it first came out um gosh a long time ago it's at least Iggy was a puppy when it came out and Iggy's 13 so (laughs) that's how old it is and it's still fantastic it's still relevant I was just flipping through it the other day it's still good stuff so that's the other resource that I really um send a lot of people to and how smart of you to be asking this question you're completely right that too often those entry-level classes really focus on quote-unquote fun and that means satisfying people quick payouts and you're right that really that hurts the dogs (laughs) essentially this next one comes from allison and allison included a story with her question and i think the whole thing is really relevant so i'm going to read the whole thing allison writes 
Distant consequences? How do you handle a failed recall attempt in the moment? Going back on the leash is a huge punisher, but if it takes 15 minutes between failing to recall and losing off-leash privileges with the, will the C, the consequence, really be the C? Allison later edited to say that she had rewatched the wildlife chat, which was a Wednesday night chat that I did on Facebook, and um, it was good. So she says, for my story, leashing probably not best, but being upset leads to worse training choices. So I'm still curious about distant consequences as a flip side to distant antecedents. One coming to mind would be pressure changes before a storm leading to hiding for a noise sensitive dog or refusing to get into the car because they associate it with being car sick or the vet. And then Allison goes on with more of her story. And just so you all know, I am intrigued by this kind of idea of distant consequences. I don't think that that works the same as distant antecedents. But I'm going to do some thinking on that, some talking to some colleagues, and I may have an episode coming for you. Uh, Allison did go on to share her specific story. She says, the story, if you're curious, I have built a solid recall, all thanks to your podcast and chats on the topic. He's a hunty dog, a German short here. Uh, sorry, I just read that wrong. Uh, he's a hunty dog. GPS, bell, read him to avoid calling if he's on the hunt. I'm very deliberate and protective of the behavior. I don't actually know what kind of dog it is, but I was misreading GPS as GSP. He's not a German short hair. He wears a GPS. <laughs> he could be a German short hair. I don't know. Anyway, um, Allison's going on to say hiking and about one and a half miles in, he started moving towards me. It seemed like a great opportunity. Evidently, it wasn't coming my way. He was air scenting. My call got a glance and he continued romping. Yikes. When I finally got to him, thanks to my GPS, I had to hike into the pond to remove him from the beaver dam. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I reinforced when he yielded to go back to the trail. Oh man, I was cold, wet, and irked, but yay for deep breathing. So he stayed on leash and we hiked back to the car. I plan to go on recall rehab now, but it's got me thinking. So Allison, first of all, the consequence can't be too distant. The dog will not read it as the consequence if it's super distant. So like you said, if it takes 20 minutes to put the dog on a leash after you called him, then it's probably not going to act as a punisher at all. But I would say that you're missing some skills here, and I may not be allowing this dog to be free in situations where I need to call him. So that means I might rent a sniff spot and not call him at all and let him have his exercise. Um, and then if I'm actually wanting to hike, he's going to stay on a leash or a long line. Um, for me, except for maybe, you know, maybe I find myself in a meadow where nothing's going on much and I can just let him romp and not call him. And then I might let him off leash there. I'm going to avoid calling him in situations where he cannot recall, which, you know, because you have trained him his recall based on my podcast. But essentially you are, you are missing some skills here. You're missing the radius skills. So you want to shape a tighter radius than what this dog has. And then the, the truth is that dogs that are super into wildlife do have a harder time with this because it is so hard to outweigh their interest in wildlife with your reinforcers. That's why you need a lot of those skills really, really built up before you let the dog back off leash. But you have to still make sure that you are providing off leash time or you're fighting a losing battle here. So you're not wrong to be thinking, man, this is really complex and hard because it is complex and hard. I would say I would be hiking him off leash in situations where you have no intention of calling him, but you do reinforce any time he comes to you for the next good long while. And then I would be keeping him on a leash or a long line when you're in situations where that's just not going to be safe or possible. 
I would not call him just because he's heading towards you either. Like I would um, early, early on, I'm rewarding those check-ins, but those check-ins are very clear. The dog approaches me. People misunderstand this all the time from my material. I don't mean the dog looks at you from 30 feet away and you mark and reinforce. I mean, the dog comes to you and you offer reinforcement. So I think that you just made an honest mistake here. You thought he was coming for you and he actually was going for that beaver. Um, And that's okay. You know, everybody makes mistakes don't worry too much about it. Don't beat yourself up about it, but do go back to the drawing board on those skills. And anytime I have a failed recall, I just really go back, go hard on the reinforcement. I go hard on the reinforcement and I try to avoid situations where recalls are going to be hard for the next kind of while. So best of luck to you, Allison. Keep working. You're doing really good work. It's just going to be a process. And the last one for this megasode comes from Izzy. And now Izzy did go in and edit and say that she found my episode entitled Hypersocial Dogs. And she said that episode really did answer her question here. But I'm going to read it anyway and answer it because I think it's relevant probably to a lot of people. So Izzy writes... I'm bringing home a puppy soon, and I have a question about dog introductions. One of my family members has a dog that my puppy will be around during future holidays and on family vacations. He tends to play rough with other dogs, however, and has gotten called out for it at dog parks before. I'm recognizing that I'm trending towards being a helicopter parent, and I know this approach of sheltering my puppy could hinder my puppy in the long run. I want my puppy to meet other dogs, like when you talked about in the Chill Out episode, a couple of other episodes, sorry, in the Chill Out and a couple of other episodes. but I'm still concerned for how this intro may go, and I'm wondering if it would be best to wait until my puppy is older and has more dog experience under their belt. So how do I know if a dog is safe to make an introduction to, or am I just being dramatic and overthinking it? So Izzy, you're not being dramatic. Um, I don't think you're overthinking it. And I think probably the answer you got from the hypersocial episode is that you should not introduce your puppy to that dog. And the reason being that dog is not demonstrating behaviors that you would like your puppy to emanate. Or, wow, I don't think that's a word. Um, that you would like your puppy to um, imitate or become. So you want to expose your puppy to adult dogs that you want your puppy to be like. This sounds like this dog is really rough, could scare your puppy, could hurt your puppy, or could teach your puppy to be a jerk too, right? None of those are good. So I would have them be near each other, but not actually meeting if the other dog can kind of keep its cool on leash near your dog. And I think that's probably the answer that you got. Y'all, you do want to let your puppy meet other dogs. You do want them to play with other dogs. You just also want to cultivate those experiences as carefully as you can and not allow them to be bullied um, or frightened by other dogs because that does produce behaviors that we do not like. All right, everybody, that's it for the Patreon question megasode. I hope that you will join Patreon and share your questions with me there so that I can read them. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.